Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are today's top stories. As the House breaks for the holidays, senators are working overtime. Negotiators race to include U.S. border security measures into further aid for Israel and Ukraine. In a surprise turn, Ukraine got the green light for talks on joining the EU, but came away empty-handed from the summit in Brussels as one country shot down hopes of an aid package. Top U.S. officials visiting Israel, what national security advisor Jake Sullivan discussed with Israeli officials, and U.S. expectations of what comes next. Seven people were arrested across Europe over a suspected terror plot targeting local Jewish civilians. What are their connections to Hamas? Pro-Palestinian protests in eight major U.S. cities. Demonstrators blocked freeways and intersections. Multiple arrests were made. We have more on the situation. The Biden administration is looking to implement an inflation penalty on dozens of drugs. Find out if this can save you money with the host of Entity Business. The political ad market is expected to reach $16 billion in 2024. We ask an expert to find out the risks, benefits, and what this means for you. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, finally December 15th. Yes, made it to the end of the week. And that is a historic breakthrough for Ukraine mm. with those accession talks on the horizon. Absolutely. And must be quite the morale boost for ah, Ukraine. Certainly. Yeah. And a former NATO Secretary General says expanding the bloc eastward is probably the best way to bring prosperity and security to Europe. Mm, right. Uh, for today's top news, the U.S. Senate is delaying its holiday break, hoping to vote for a Ukraine-Israel aid package next week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiators aim to reach a framework deal over the weekend. Schumer says the Senate will reconvene Monday for a vote no matter what. The House recessed for the holiday break yesterday with no sign of returning before January. GOP senators insist border security policy changes are tied to any more aid for Ukraine. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on negotiations. White House and Senate negotiators are racing to wrap up a border security compromise on stalled aid for Ukraine before the year's end. The Senate plans to reconvene Monday in hopes of passing President Biden's $110 billion aid request. Negotiators are working on a deal with new restrictions on asylum claims that would allow Homeland Security officials to stop applications if total crossings exceed a certain threshold. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Thursday negotiations were making good progress. If we believe something is important and urgent, we should stay and get the job done. Biden is urging Congress to pass the measure that would provide $50 billion in new security to Ukraine as it fights Russia and $14 billion for Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Republicans have repeatedly said they'll only vote for more Ukraine aid if it's paired with new controls for the U.S.-Mexico border. Negotiator Senator Kirsten Sinema says she can now see the deal after a period of feeling it had stalled. The fact that the White House is fully engaged in the negotiations has definitely made a difference. It's communicated to Senate Republicans that this is serious and that we've got a deal in the future. So that's been really helpful. Cinema, without discussing details, says her aim is to craft the Senate bill that can pass with majorities of both parties by making sure it has both the policy and funding to create what she called an orderly, safe, secure and humane process for seeking asylum or immigrating for other legal reasons. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio warned there would be what he called a revolt by Republicans if they're forced into a quick vote. GOP Senator Tom Cotton says he thinks negotiators are still very far apart on the border crisis and have not addressed the GOP demand to limit Biden's so-called parole authority used to allow hundreds of thousands of migrants to enter the U.S. legally. Some Democrats are concerned leaving the funding deadlock in limbo for weeks will lead to the deal's collapse. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Let's get some analysis on the border crisis and the impasse in Congress on the supplemental aid package with Simon Hankinson, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Border Security and Immigration Center. Simon, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Let's go down to Lukeville, Arizona, where the crossing is now being overwhelmed and Border Patrol agents really have their hands full. They're over capacity and they're sending illegal immigrants to Tucson for processing. What happens when border agents are overwhelmed like this? Can there be proper vetting when releasing migrants into the country? 
No, of course not. And and there wasn't proper vetting before. Let's remember, they're overwhelmed now. They've been overwhelmed for three years. It's over 10,000 a day now, but it's there's not a huge difference between 10,000, 12,000, I think, which is the national historical record, and 9,000. They simply don't have the capacity or the time to vet people in any meaningful way. These people throw away their documents in, in most cases, or and so there's absolutely no way to know who they are. Uh, we, their birth date, there's no criminal records check or background check of any kind taking place before most of them are released into the country. Does Biden's inclusion of border security in the supplemental aid package mark a departure from what have some called his open border policies, or is it more that he is actually trying now to you know, allow people with dubious immigration statuses to have an easier way of entering the country? I don't think there's any change in the philosophy coming out of the Biden administration. I think uh, the immigration policy is, is run by people who essentially believe in open borders and, and they don't want to enforce laws. I think this is a political shift uh, that's driven by the Republicans, quite frankly, growing a bit of a spine on this issue. Uh, Speaker Johnson is holding the line and there are uh, Republican senators uh, like J.D. Vance, who you just had on, who are saying enough is enough. We, we need some actual serious reform uh, so we can control our own border before we help out uh, our, our friends and allies elsewhere. So let's turn to Washington here. President Biden is blaming Republicans, saying that they would rather go on vacation than stick it out and work to come to a conclusion here on what to do with this supplemental aid package, whereas others, like Senator Lindsey Graham, are saying that President Biden himself needs to be more involved in these talks because he's not convinced that Murphy and Lankford will be able to reach an agreement here. What do you make of this? Uh, I'm not sure President Biden personally being involved would uh, uh, get to a deal quicker. Um, he's always touted himself as a great negotiator. Um, uh, but I, I think it, it is important that the White House be involved. Of course, they're going to play the game of blaming each other. Uh, they all want to go home for, for Christmas. But uh, uh, a deal is important on Ukraine, at least to the Democrats, and a deal on the border is important to the Republicans. Uh, in, in a perfect world where we had politicians who were willing to compromise, uh, everybody would get something that they wanted. Um, but I've been disappointed so many times before on, on immigration that uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he's saying that these Actually, there's probably not going to be chances for them. Well, there might be or might not be chances for them to actually reach an agreement by the year's end. And the House has just recessed. So even if they were to reach an agreement, would there even be a possibility of getting this passed anyway? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a criminologist uh, uh, and I don't know as much about the insides of the, of the sausage factory and how they make laws in Congress. Um, there, there, there's a chance. There's always a chance. Um, and they have all kinds of tools that they can use to uh, keep people in Washington longer than, than they had planned. Uh, but there are an awful lot of pieces that need to fall into place, including getting whatever the Senate agrees to pass the House, where they're a little more hardcore on this issue uh, than, than their colleagues in the Senate. So I think it would be really threading the needle to get it done. But you never know. Ukraine aid is extremely important to this White House, and maybe they'll be able to make some concessions and, and pull it off. Right, a lot riding on this, two wars in the world, and of course what Republicans have said is a national security concern securing the border. Simon Hankinson at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your time. My pleasure. House lawmakers are leaving D.C. for the holidays after passing a massive defense spending bill. It requires the Pentagon to assess the consequences of a hypothetical war in China. Other pieces are receiving harsh criticism, some raising concerns about the government spying on Americans. And today's Melina Wisecup reports from Capitol Hill. On a vote of 310 to 118, with 73 Republicans and 45 Democrats opposed, the House has passed its national defense bill. This year's budget, a total of $886 billion, a $28 billion increase from last year, including a 5% increase in pay for service members. And while many lawmakers can stand behind this change, there are other pieces of the bill that some are not so happy about, such as the temporary extension of a surveillance law that some warn is abused. FISA, we know, has been spying on the American people. They've been spying on you guys with the microphones in your hands right now. That needs to end immediately, so I opposed it. 278,000 
improper searches of Americans. And this body is just going to extend the very mechanism of those abuses on the back of the National Defense Authorization Act and say, have a nice day. Merry Christmas. The bill also allows the Pentagon to use tax dollars to pay for service members traveling for abortions and some notable wording on China provisions. It requires the Pentagon to assess the consequences of a hypothetical war with China in 2030 and to outline possible avenues for attack. We need to plan for all contingencies and um, China is uh, exhibiting an aggressiveness under Xi that we haven't seen before. But also an effort to try and go after the U.S. dollar to eliminate it as a global currency by drawing in a lack of confidence to the currency for developing nations. So all of our Indo-Pacific countries are now working collectively to make sure that we keep China at bay and we are prepared if China steps over that line. The NDAA has already passed the Senate, so its next stop is off to the White House for the president's signature before becoming law. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. The GOP has found a rugged replacement for the empty seat of George Santos. New York Republicans have selected a former Israel Defense Forces soldier to run in a special election for the vacated spot. The Ethiopian-born Israeli immigrant Mazi Pilip will face Democrat Tom Swazi. The election is in February 2024. The seat became available after the scandal-ridden Santos was expelled from the House earlier this month. It is critical for the GOP to win the election in order to hold on to its slim edge in the House. Mazi Pilip is a former IDF paratrooper and a mother of seven. She currently serves as a member of the Nassau County Legislature, representing Long Island's 10th District. You win some, you lose some. Former President Donald Trump triumphed in a Michigan case yesterday while falling short in New York. A Michigan appeals court ruled that Trump will be on the Michigan primary ballot, upholding a lower court decision. The Trump campaign declared victory, saying none of the, quote, bad faith challenges have succeeded in any state. But Trump did not fare as well in New York. An appeals court there rejected his challenge to a gag order. This a day after testimony ended in a civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General. New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron issued the gag order in October. It prohibits Trump and his attorneys from making statements about the judge's staff. And coming up, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban shoots down a Ukrainian aid package at the EU summit. But not all the news Ukraine got was bad. And seven people were arrested across Europe over a suspected terror plot targeting local Jewish civilians on behalf of Hamas. Stay tuned for that. Welcome back. A surprise reversal in Europe. The European Union decided yesterday to open accession negotiations with Ukraine. And today's Daniel Monaghan has more on the development for Ukraine, which had long struggled to find backing for its membership aspirations. EU Council President Charles Michel called it a historic moment. Tonight, we sent a very powerful signal to the uh, European citizens, a very powerful signal to the uh, Ukrainian citizens. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed the agreement as a victory for Ukraine and for all of Europe. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has long opposed EU accession talks for Ukraine saying the EU set up preconditions for joining which have not been met. Three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So therefore, there is no reason to discuss anything. And warned on Wednesday before the summit that forcing a decision on the issues could destroy EU unity. Orban had threatened to veto the start of accession talks, but ultimately backpedaled, saying he decided to let his right to oppose lapse because the 26 other nations were arguing so strongly in favor, although his opposition remained strong. But it wasn't all good news for Ukraine. EU leaders failed to approve a nearly $55 billion aid package for the war-torn country, with Hungary's Orban vetoing it. Ukraine says it desperately needs the money to stay afloat, 
Council President Charles Michel says leaders will reconvene in January to try and break the deadlock. Zelensky also came back empty-handed from the U.S. this week after failing to convince lawmakers to approve over $60 billion, mainly to buy weapons from the U.S. The European Council also decided to open accession talks with Moldova and granted candidate status to Georgia. Czech Prime Minister Petr Fiala says it's important that the EU clearly shows that it cares about such countries as they experience these difficult moments. These are important decisions. It is an important signal from the EU. The EU also says it will open negotiations with Bosnia and Herzegovina once the necessary degree of compliance with the membership criteria is reached. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke out at his end-of-year press conference. Putin had a lot to say about Russia's war in Ukraine and Israel's war against Hamas. He also confirmed that discussions are ongoing with the U.S. about the fate of Evan Gershkovich and Paul Whelan. The State Department says the two Americans have been detained unfairly. The Kremlin says more than two million questions were submitted for Putin's marathon news conference that was combined with a call-in show. Let's take a look. This was Putin's first big news conference since his invasion of Ukraine nearly two years ago. For hours, the Kremlin leader answered carefully picked questions, restating Russian objectives in what he calls his special military operation. There will be peace when we achieve our goals. They haven't changed. This is the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and its neutral status. For the first time, Putin revealed more than 600,000 troops are currently in the conflict zone. But he gave no indication of losses, which U.S. intelligence estimates are extremely high. The Russian leader did, however, indicate he believed Western resolve on Ukraine may be crumbling, significant, as American aid for Ukraine is held up in the U.S. Congress. Today, Ukraine produces almost nothing. They are trying to preserve something, but they produce almost nothing. They get everything, excuse the bad manners, for free. But this freebie may end someday, and apparently it is ending. One Russian reporter asked Putin about recent Ukrainian gains across the Dnipro River. They're just small areas, Putin said, in which Ukrainian forces are now highly exposed. I don't know why they are doing it. They are pushing their people to get killed. It's a one-way trip for Ukrainian forces. The reason for this are political, because Ukrainian leaders are begging foreign countries for aid. This was a highly staged event with carefully vetted questions. But a live stream of public texts threw up a few surprising challenges. How many yachts does Putin have? Asked one anonymous message. Why is your reality different to our reality? Asked another. A glimpse behind the curtain, perhaps, into what some Russians are really thinking. In a bizarre moment, a Russian child appeared in a video message asking if her family would ever be replaced by robots. Moderator then played an extraordinary video of what she said was a deep fake image of Putin asking the real Russian leader if he had many doubles. You're the first, Putin responded, though of course there are rumours he has many. I see you can look like me and speak in my voice, but I thought about it and have decided that only one person should look like me and speak in my voice, and that person would be me. Meanwhile, as Putin held court, U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich actually appeared in one, another appeal against his detention for alleged espionage denied though Putin indicated talks to return detained Americans are ongoing. It's not that we refuse their return. We do not refuse. We want to negotiate, and the agreements must be mutually acceptable and satisfactory to both sides. What Russia wants, though, remains unclear. 
Seven suspected terrorists were just arrested across three different European countries. Many of them allegedly targeted local Jewish citizens on behalf of Hamas. We can, for a number of years now, see that there are some people who live in Denmark who don't wish us well, who are against our democracy and who are against our freedom, and who are against, in reality, Danish society. Germany, Denmark and Netherlands all arrested suspected terrorists. Danish police said that the bus was part of a probe into a street gang that was plotting terror attacks across the country. So far, the investigation is still in a preliminary stage. Meanwhile, the suspects arrested in Germany and the Netherlands reportedly took orders from Hamas leaders in Lebanon. They were allegedly tasked with storing weapons in Berlin for future attacks against Jewish institutions. European authorities have warned of a rise of violent attacks by Islamic terrorists following the Israel-Hamas war. Definitely some security that needs to be done there. Yeah, and apparently some experts say that this is a new low because Hamas previously was just known to operate within the Palestinian territories like Gaza and the West Bank. So them spilling over, that's quite big. Yeah, a transnational terror organization right. is definitely something that has to be dealt with. So stay with us. The U.S. is pushing for precise targeting of Hamas leadership in Israel's next phase of the war. Takeaways from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's trip to the Middle East. President Biden warns Netanyahu that Israel is losing international support. We hear from an analyst on what this means for Israel and if they will change their war strategy to eliminate Hamas. Pro-Palestinian protests in eight major U.S. cities. Demonstrators blocked freeways and intersections. Multiple arrests were made. We have more on that situation for you in just a minute. Thanks for staying with us. President Biden is pushing Israel to focus on saving civilian lives during its military operations. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is in Israel to reaffirm U.S. support. He's meeting with top officials pushing to move to war into its next phase. The U.S. wants more intelligence-based raids and precise targeting of Hamas leadership. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on U.S. expectations. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Thursday to discuss civilian casualties in the timetable of the war in Gaza. Sullivan brought a message from President Biden of the wish for Israel to be more accurate in strikes. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. Netanyahu, after meeting Sullivan, vowed Israel would continue hunting Hamas until absolute victory. Netanyahu says talks with Sullivan involved continued humanitarian aid to Gazan civilians. Sullivan called talks with the war cabinet intense and detailed, focused on a shift desired by the U.S., from high-intensity warfare to a more surgical and targeted approach and intelligence-based raids. There will be a transition to another phase of this war, one that is focused uh, in more precise ways on targeting the leadership. The U.S. hopes the so-called lower-intensity operations could minimize civilian casualties. The Gaza-Hamas-run health ministry claims casualties have passed 18,000. One senior Biden administration official at Sullivan's press briefing commented on Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar, believed to be hiding in southern Gaza. The official said Sinwar has American blood on his hands and that his days are numbered. Sullivan's list also included discussing efforts to free eight American hostages still being held by Hamas. We're still working by the hour to try to get uh, a pause back in place so that hostages can get released. Sullivan is set to meet with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas Friday to discuss post-war arrangements for the Gaza Strip. Saying Friday in Tel Aviv, the U.S. does not want Israel to occupy Gaza over the long term. I have and will continue to state President Biden and the United States' commitment to preserving space for peace for a two-state solution where Israel's security is guaranteed. The Pentagon says top U.S. General Charles Q. Brown will join Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visiting Israel Saturday. Austin will also visit Qatar and Bahrain in his trip to the Middle East. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And for more on this, we bring in David Wormser. He is an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning. It's really good to see you this morning. We just heard it. So there is increased pressure on Israel from the U.S. And Biden was also warning that Israel is losing international support. So what do you think is the impact of that on Israel in the war? 
Well, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a significant impact because the United States, it isn't that the Israelis need the United States now to constantly hold their hand. What they need is for the United States to run diplomatic cover at the United Nations and avoid having a ceasefire imposed on the situation, which would then involve the survival of Hamas and a continuation of the uh, state of threat that Israel's under that they faced after October 7th. So they need the United States to do the dipl diplomacy internationally. And the problem is if the United States begins to turn against Israel, uh, that's, a, that's a significant problem because the Europeans will then begin to turn against Israel as well. And then Israel's quite isolated. So on that level, it's very important. So um, the U.S., for instance, is now also delaying the sale of M16 rifles. So what kind of pressure do you think the U.S. will still apply in the future? Do you think it will go to um, Israel will uh, eventually lose the cover in the U.N.? I think that's the biggest form of pressure that the United States has. Anything else, you're going to start getting a tremendous amount of pushback from American uh, politicians and so forth uh, against it. Because the war for the Congress, in Congress, uh, the Israelis are still quite popular. And the support for Israel is very high. And even in the United States, as the people, the support for Israel is actually quite high, despite the very loud demonstrations and uh, disruptive demonstrations you see around the country. So Israel does have the American sort of establishment behind them. Uh, this is a politically driven pressure on Israel, and that's problematic for Biden to do. He's obviously working off of the presidential election uh, a schedule. He says Israel should uh, make this transition in January, uh, which which is not uh, operationally logical. It's entirely uh, driven by the political schedule. That's a difficult place for the president to go on I this see. war. So would you say that maybe the actual pressure, pressure on Israel isn't as strong as it immediately seems uh, publicly? Well, I, I think it may not be quite as strong publicly because the Israelis have options of sort of going end around the president and tapping into the larger American support. But it is serious. I mean, a U.N. vote that is uh, where the United States lets it go through, that could be very damaging to Israel. And in Israel, there is no patience to stop the war right now. They want to finish this so that they never have to face this threat again that they faced on October 7th, and they want the same in the north, by the way, on the Lebanese border. Right. So with this, of course, being uh, urban warfare, and do you think it's possible for Israel to balance this preserving civilian lives while eradicating Hamas in the way that U.S. is asking for? Not with the timeline the United States is asking for. I mean, there's a direct correlation between how long this takes and how carefully Israel has to operate. Uh, Israel Israel's operating very carefully. If they if they didn't care about civilians, this would have been over in a day. They had enough power to flatten uh, Gaza entirely uh, and indiscriminate carpet bombing, and it would have been over in one day. This is all a function of the Israelis operating with a great deal of caution to preserve civilian lives. And the more Israel is pressured to bring this to a conclusion immediately, the fact the less careful Israel can be. So I can't see them reconciling the two ends. And I think the Israelis ultimately will go on until they have to finish this. So, and, and they'll go on carefully. Right. Uh, and so I think the timeline is what, what will fall. I see. So it seems it's interesting, right? Because it seems like there's two sides to this. One, one is uh, Israel trying to be careful with civilian, de uh, civilian death. The other is, you know, with, with time going on in a prolonged timeline like this, do you think the longer it goes on, it would make the political solution in Gaza more challenging as well, especially with Netanyahu wanting Tel Aviv to have a role in that? Well, yes, it does largely because it also how this ends also determines whether Hamas in exile, or even if Hamas still with its operatives in Gaza even under Israeli control, how much confidence they have coming out of this. And if they feel that the international community is turning against Israel, it's sort of like a shot of adrenaline to Hamas. And that guarantees that even in the day after, when Israel uh, occupies all of Gaza, 
they will have the confidence to operate from Lebanon, from Jordan, from the West Bank. It will increase the political support in the West Bank. So actually, the United States, I think, is, again, the faster it pushes Israel, the more it makes it look as if they're splitting with Israel, the less potential there is for a, a, a political solution in Gaza anywhere along the lines that the United States is looking for. Thank you, thank you, David Wormser. We're running out of time here, unfortunately, but I appreciate your time this morning very much. Thank you. The Israeli military recovered the bodies of three Israelis, one civilian and two soldiers. The IDF says they were held in the Gaza Strip by Hamas since the October 7th terror attack. The military said the three victims were identified in a process carried out by medical officials, military rabbis, and forensic experts. It did not elaborate on the circumstances of their killing or what areas in Gaza they were recovered from. Israeli media reported that one victim was taken by Hamas from the Nova Outdoor Music Festival, which turned into a massacre. Israel says 240 people in Israel were taken hostage when Hamas gunmen breached the separation barrier into Israel on October 7th and killed 1,200 people. Pro-Palestinian protests continue throughout the U.S. A Jewish group demanding a ceasefire in Gaza held protests yesterday in eight U.S. cities on the eighth night of Hanukkah. Protesters blocked rush hour traffic on busy streets and bridges in Washington and Philadelphia. And today's Kostemines brings us more. According to the group Jewish Voice for Peace, around 100 protesters blocked the overpass to New York Avenue in Washington, D.C. People were urged to use alternate routes as the demonstration closed the intersection of New York Avenue and North Capitol Street. On the eighth night of Hanukkah, eight cities, eight bridges, the group posted on X. The group also organized protests in multiple other cities, including Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Minneapolis, Seattle and Portland, Oregon. Separate protests were also held in Philadelphia, where about 200 protesters briefly blocked I-76. More than 30 people were reportedly arrested. The demonstrations followed other protests earlier this week. In New York City on Tuesday, dozens of pro-Palestinians gathered outside the New York Times, Citigroup and Starbucks buildings to protest the company's stance on the Israel-Hamas conflict. And on Wednesday, protesters blocked traffic on a busy Los Angeles highway during the morning rush hour. The protesters stood in the roadway and later sat down, forming a human chain. California Highway Patrol reported around 75 people were detained. On Wednesday, some staff from the Biden administration also held a vigil demanding a ceasefire. However, the State Department is holding firm to its position that a ceasefire would only benefit the Hamas terrorists. We want this conflict to end. We don't want to see it go on uh, a day longer than is necessary. But we also don't think that stopping the campaign right now and allowing the plotters of the October 7th attacks to continue to operate. The protests come after the UN announced a resolution on Tuesday demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. Cost MNS, NTD News. Police have charged an Ohio teenager for allegedly planning a shooting at a synagogue. The Stark County Sheriff's Office reported the 13-year-old posted plans online for the shooting to happen at the Temple Israel in Canton. He was charged with inducing panic and disorderly conduct for making the threats. He is due to appear in family court for a pretrial hearing next week. And coming up, the Biden administration is looking to impose an inflation penalty on dozens of different prescription drugs. Find out what this means for you. General Motors announced layoffs at two of its assembly plants. We bring on the host of Entity Business to hear what this means for the car market after the break.
good to have you back. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss the Biden administration's efforts to lower drug costs. The administration said yesterday that it wants to impose inflation penalties on dozens of drugs. So Don, is this going to lower drug costs for Americans? Well, first of all, the White House uh, yesterday said that it had found around 48 drugs part of the Medicare program uh, whose prices actually rose faster than inflation. And this was in the fourth quarter. And it seems like drug makers may be required uh, to pay rebates uh, back to Medicare next year. And what this means is that drug, uh, drug makers will have to uh, pay uh, the federal government and then the money uh, will be used to lower the price. Uh, Medicare en enrollees uh, pay on the drugs next year. Um, and according to the White House statement from yesterday, this could uh, save up to 2,700 out-of-pocket costs for uh, those who take these drugs. So it could be uh, significant here. Um, this is because Biden's uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, actually includes a provision that allows penalties to some drug makers here. And this is, this, this is the first time that drug makers would have to pay some sort of penalty uh, for outpatient drug treatments. Um, I mean, Americans do pay more uh, in terms of prescription drugs uh, compared to other countries. And maybe this move will help reduce that cost. Um, I mean, it could mean that hundreds of thousands of older uh, Americans could uh, pay less for their uh, outpatient drug uh, treatments. Um, but we have to keep in mind that uh, the White House is eager to emphasize Biden's Inflation Reduction Act because he is, uh, in fact, running for president for a second term uh, in 2024. So we have to also keep that uh, in mind. Right. So uh, staying with the drugs, what types of drugs are covered here? Um, well, the types of drugs on the government's list uh, will vary. Uh, they include uh, from generic drugs, medications taken orally or injected uh, and treat a variety of disorders or illnesses, from chemotherapy treatments uh, to growth hormones used to treat endocrine disorders. But all of the drugs the White House says uh, raised uh, their prices significantly this year, uh, some maybe uh, up to 20 percent. Um, and the price decreases, uh, it seems like, will only be seen for patients who access the drugs on Medicare uh, Part B. And but, you know, th these rebates could be an incentive for some drug makers to uh, not raise prices too much uh, compared to inflation. But again, as it readies for their 2024 election campaign, the Biden administration uh, is rolling out a number of efforts to push pharmaceutical companies to lower drug prices. And just last week, and I'll mention one, one of them, uh, the White House announced that it was considering an aggressive and unprecedented new tactic, tactic which is pulling the patents of some drugs. Uh, I mean, we could go into that, but it seems like it could be a long discussion. Maybe we'll save it for another time. Yeah, it seems like the administration is really taking this seriously. I want to change topics here at the Don. What's going on at GM? Yeah, uh, good question. General Motors is actually planning to lay off about 1,300 workers. Now, this is according to uh, notices the company filed with Michigan regulators. And the layoffs will take place at the Orion Assembly and Lansing Grand River Assembly plants next year. Those plants were used to uh, manufacture Chevy Bolt electric vehicles. And the company was planning to also use them to build Silverado EV and Serrera um, EV models. Um, but GM announced in October that it was delaying the start of production for those pickup trucks. Mm. And one last thing, though, before we let you go here. So Christmas obviously is coming up. So what can holiday travelers expect this season? Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of us are wondering. Expect days of busy airports this holiday season. Airlines for America's uh, predicts 2.8 uh, million passengers will fly each day. That's going to represent a 16% increase in passengers compared to last year. And the holiday period seems more spread out than usual. Uh, Delta says that it has a seven-way tie for which day it thinks will be busiest. And the FAA predicts a peak on the Thursday before Christmas. And American Airlines is forecasting that for Friday. Well, I'm going to be one of those flying going to Chicago to see the family. Well, I mean, some people just have to do that. Yep. You know? Yeah, family Good luck time. to you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, a new rule is making it easier for candidates seeking federal office to pay themselves a salary while campaigning. 
And the political ad market is expected to reach $16 billion by 2024. We take a look at the risks, benefits, and what this means for you after the break. Good morning and welcome back. Regulators are making it easier for candidates seeking federal office to pay themselves a salary while campaigning. A new rule approved by the Federal Election Commission reforms how they can use campaign funds. Right now, the salaries they can give themselves are tied to their earnings from the previous year. This discourages people with low salaries from running for office. The new regulation allows them to pay themselves up to 50% the annual U.S. House salary, or $87,000 per year. They will also be able to start drawing a paycheck when they file their statements of candidacy with the FEC. Right now, they have to wait until the filing deadlines in their states, which vary widely. The new regulation goes into effect next year. And the political ad market is projected to reach about $16 billion in 2024, according to a forecast by Group M. Yeah, we hear more about this and the risks that come with it from Dan McMillan, the executive director of Save Democracy in America. Take a look. The bottom line is fundraising is really now the most important part of any candidate's job at the national level. And you can't afford to alienate anyone who might give you money, and that means that any idea, any policy solution that, that we need for the country's many problems is automatically out of the conversation. And that's, so to put it another way, you know, we hear a lot of there's good reporting on, on sort of blind influence peddling, like Big Pharma basically owns Congress because they're one of the biggest donors. And that's why we're the only country, first world country that doesn't regulate drug prices. And so Americans, pay twice as much for drug prices as everyone else. These obvious examples, and you see them in defense contracts too, are important, but they're the tip of the iceberg. The, the real meat of the matter is that by default, because you need tons of money just to get a campaign off the ground, by default, the donors select the candidates we're allowed to vote for. Because any candidate that, or any, any policy idea that's unattractive or even uninteresting to donors doesn't attract their cash and that candidate those ideas die off out of sight out of mind we never hear of them and that's why more and more the whole political conversation in this country has been like drained of substance where are the solutions the solutions are nowhere to be found because for every good idea there's going to be a group of donors whose financial ox would be gored and they'll block it. And they don't even have to call the politician up to block it. The politician already knows not to say the things that the donors won't like to hear. So anyway, I, I haven't let you get a word in edgewise. Uh, am I clear enough so far, Kevin? Does this? Well, this is all very valuable insight. And this is such an important issue, Dan, because as 538 reports, 90% of the candidates who spent the most in the House, they won. Now, political analysts have told me that the presidential election is not really going to hinge on who spends the most because so many people know Trump and Biden's faces. But I do want to ask, how is political polarization going to be furthered by this amount of political ad money? In several ways, you know, divide and conquer has been kind of of the way that our moneyed interests have all often stayed on top in our history because we are the most diverse of the world's democracies. Um, and, it, and so that is the more the parties are owned by, by special interests and are unable to give middle class and working class Americans help with our pocketbooks, the more they need to turn us against each other and distract us from our shared interests by playing on our prejudices. I think the other way that it drives polarization is that more and more, because the hunger for campaign cash basically hogties all of our representatives when they get to Washington and they, they can't really offer an achievable positive program, all, all they've got left to offer us is, is anger. And both parties, more and more of the last three cycles, default to negative messaging because anger is all they've got left for us. Well, Dan McMillan, Executive Director for Save Democracy in America, thank you so much for bringing this fascinating perspective in the hopes of bringing more unity. Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm glad to be here. 
Incredible, some of the stats that you said. And some, it, it, the projection says that it will be the 10th largest market. Yeah. In, in, yeah. Yeah, the ad market, I know, it's, it's really amazing. And then even Group M has this projection, keep going. In 2028, it's going to reach about 20 billion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really wondering about the specifics here. You know, how exactly do the ads change our perception maybe that we otherwise would have of those candidates and, you know, all the, or how emotions would play into that. Yeah. Very well, most of them are going to be on TV, so we can expect to see probably a lot of them. Hmm. Absolutely. All right. Uh, stay with us for just one minute. We will be right back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are today's top stories. Senators delay their holiday break to resolve the Ukraine funding deadlock as negotiators race to work border security measures into the aid bill. In a surprise turn, Ukraine got the green light for talks on joining the EU, but came away empty-handed from the summit in Brussels as one country shot down hopes of an aid package. A former New York FBI leader is facing prison time. He was charged with money laundering and violating U.S. national security. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani opts not to testify as arguments in his defamation case end. An eight-person federal jury decides his financial fate today. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the soapbox with a warning. This message centers on what he calls laws that favor the two-party duopoly. Find out more from a reporter covering his campaign. Four brothers living alongside a native tribe in Indonesia for 15 years hear the incredible story of the brothers' upbringing and their unwavering faith. A New Jersey train station gets an unexpected visitor on the tracks. Stay tuned to see what happens next. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Happy Friday, everybody. Today is December 15th. And in today's top news, the U.S. Senate is delaying its holiday break, hoping to vote for a Ukraine-Israel aid package next week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiators aim to reach a framework deal over the weekend. Schumer says the Senate will reconvene Monday for a vote no matter what. The House recessed for the holiday break yesterday with no sign of returning before January. GOP senators insist border security policy changes are tied to any more aid for Ukraine. NDD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on negotiations. White House and Senate negotiators are racing to wrap up a border security compromise on stalled aid for Ukraine before the year's end. The Senate plans to reconvene Monday in hopes of passing President Biden's $110 billion aid request. Negotiators are working on a deal with new restrictions on asylum claims that would allow Homeland Security officials to stop applications if total crossings exceed a certain threshold. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Thursday negotiations were making good progress. If we believe something is important and urgent, we should stay and get the job done. Biden is urging Congress to pass the measure that would provide $50 billion in new security to Ukraine as it fights Russia and $14 billion for Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Republicans have repeatedly said they'll only vote for more Ukraine aid if it's paired with new controls for the U.S.-Mexico border. Negotiator Senator Kirsten Sinema says she can now see the deal after a period of feeling it had stalled. 
The fact that the White House is fully engaged in the negotiations has definitely made a difference. It's communicated to Senate Republicans that this is serious and that we've got a deal in the future. So that's been really helpful. Cinema, without discussing details, says her aim is to craft the Senate bill that can pass with majorities of both parties by making sure it has both the policy and funding to create what she called an orderly, safe, secure and humane process for seeking asylum or immigrating for other legal reasons. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio warned there would be what he called a revolt by Republicans if they're forced into a quick vote. GOP Senator Tom Cotton says he thinks negotiators are still very far apart on the border crisis and have not addressed the GOP demand to limit Biden's so-called parole authority used to allow hundreds of thousands of migrants to enter the U.S. legally. Some Democrats are concerned leaving the funding deadlock in limbo for weeks will lead to the deal's collapse. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani has a potential multi-million dollar decision sitting in the hands of an eight-person federal jury. Giuliani has already been found liable for defamation over accusations of election fraud. The jury began deliberating yesterday to decide how much he must pay. The two former Georgia election workers suing him are seeking $24 million each. Giuliani's lawyer says that would be the civil equivalent of the death penalty. Giuliani chose not to testify yesterday. His attorney said in closing arguments that the two plaintiffs saw his client as having deep pockets. The jury resumes deliberations this morning to decide damages. And the former head of New York's FBI counterintelligence field office was sentenced to over four years in prison. Charles McGonagall pleaded guilty in August to a conspiracy charge. It involved working for a sanctioned Russian oligarch after leaving government. He violated U.S. sanctions and engaged in money laundering for a Russian oligarch with close ties to President Putin. McGonagall is a 22-year FBI veteran. He was sentenced to just under the maximum of five years. Prosecutors sought to sentence McGonagall to the full five-year term, arguing he breached U.S. national security. McGonagall must surrender to prison on February 26th. His attorney said that his client is relieved to have this behind him. A surprise reversal in Europe. The European Union decided yesterday to open accession negotiations with Ukraine. And today's Daniel Monaghan has more on the development for Ukraine, which had long struggled to find backing for its membership aspirations. EU Council President Charles Michel called it a historic moment. Tonight, we sent a very powerful signal to the uh, European citizens, a very powerful signal to the uh, Ukrainian citizens. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed the agreement as a victory for Ukraine and for all of Europe. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has long opposed EU accession talks for Ukraine saying the EU set up preconditions for joining which have not been met. Three out of the seven is not fulfilled. So therefore, there is no reason to discuss anything. And warned on Wednesday before the summit that forcing a decision on the issues could destroy EU unity. Orban had threatened to veto the start of accession talks, but ultimately backpedaled, saying he decided to let his right to oppose lapse because the 26 other nations were arguing so strongly in favor, although his opposition remained strong. But it wasn't all good news for Ukraine. EU leaders failed to approve a nearly $55 billion aid package for the war-torn country, with Hungary's Orban vetoing it. Ukraine says it desperately needs the money to stay afloat, Council President Charles Michel says leaders will reconvene in January to try and break the deadlock. Zelensky also came back empty-handed from the U.S. this week after failing to convince lawmakers to approve over $60 billion, mainly to buy weapons from the U.S. The European Council also decided to open accession talks with Moldova and granted candidate status to Georgia. Czech Prime Minister Petr Fiala says it's important that the EU clearly shows that it cares about such countries as they experience these difficult moments. These are important decisions. It is an important signal from the EU. The EU also says it will open negotiations with Bosnia and Herzegovina once the necessary degree of compliance with the membership criteria is reached. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
Seven suspected terrorists were just arrested across three different European countries. Many of them allegedly targeted local Jewish citizens on behalf of Hamas. We can, for a number of years now, see that there are some people who live in Denmark who don't wish us well, who are against our democracy and who are against our freedom and who are against, in reality, Danish society. Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands all arrested suspected terrorists. Danish police said that the bus was part of a probe into a street gang that was plotting terror attacks across the country. So far, the investigation is still in a preliminary stage. Meanwhile, the suspects arrested in Germany and the Netherlands reportedly took orders from Hamas leaders in Lebanon. They were allegedly tasked with storing weapons in Berlin for future attacks against Jewish institutions. European authorities have warned of a rise in violent attacks by Islamic terrorists following the Israel-Hamas war. And coming up, Senate Democrat Joe Manchin is not seeking re-election to his Senate seat. This Is this a sign for a 2024 presidential bid? And four brothers living alongside a native tribe in Indonesia for 15 years. We hear their incredible story and their mission inspired by their unwavering faith. A bull on the loose in a New Jersey train station. Find out what happens next as we follow the bull up and down the tracks. Thanks for staying with us. A Senate Democrat is possibly seeking to run for president in 2024. Joe Manchin says voters are ready for a change from extreme positions on the left and the right. And Manchin says he would consider running for president as a third party candidate, but only if he truly had a chance at winning. The only things for sure right now are that he's not seeking re-election to his Senate seat, one that he's held for 13 years and then he's planning a two-month speaking tour starting in January. The Democrat from West Virginia says President Biden is on the extreme left. Some fellow Democrats are concerned that a third-party candidacy would shred votes from President Biden. Manchin, a self-described moderate, believes America needs to get away from extremes and says leadership in both parties isn't representing Americans. And a new national poll shows Trump leading Biden in seven swing states. That's up from five states last month. And today's Arlene Richards breaks down the numbers. Should President Biden be worried 11 months before Election Day? According to recent polls, he should. A morning consult and Bloomberg News poll shows Biden trailing in seven battleground states. That's two more than a New York Times-Siena College poll showed last month. The latest results published Thursday include a survey of nearly 5,000 swing state voters from November 27 to December 6. Key states surveyed include Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Trump leads in all seven states by an average margin of 5.3 points. The former president is leading in Wisconsin by four points, knocking out Biden's two-point lead a month ago. Biden performs worse against Trump in North Carolina and Georgia. At a town hall Wednesday in Iowa, Trump took aim at Biden. Families all across America are struggling under the brutal weight of Bidenomics. You know, Bidenomics means a lot of bad things. Trump pointed to high prices and inflation as a symptom of Bidenomics. He also questioned Biden's mental fitness. It's just incredible that he can, frankly, be even running anything. I can't, he can't put two sentences together. As for the GOP primary, a Monmouth County University Washington Post poll shows 63% of likely Republican voters in Michigan would vote for Trump. Haley and DeSantis tied for second place at 13%. Meanwhile, at another Iowa event, Vivek Ramaswamy was on the defense as moderator Abby Phillip challenged his stance on the January 6th Capitol breach. If you had told me that January 6th was in any way an inside job, the subject of government entrapment, I would have told you that was crazy talk. Fringe conspiracy theory nonsense. I can tell you now, having gone somewhat deep in this, it's not. 
the reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. Philip interrupted Ramaswamy to say there is no proof that federal agents were in the crowd. In a social media post, Ramaswamy said there is clear evidence that there was at the very least entrapment of peaceful protesters. Over in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is capitalizing on an endorsement from Governor Chris Sununu. But she needs a lot more votes to catch up to Trump. On Fox News Thursday, Sununu asked for help. I'm asking everyone to come out. I, if you're a Republican, a conservative, an independent, conservative Democrat, I don't care. Sununu, a Republican, believes Haley has enough broad appeal among conservatives and moderates to take on Trump in the GOP primary. But a recent Real Clear Politics poll shows Trump leading Haley by just over 25 points in New Hampshire, 44.3 to 18.7. Trump is set to visit New Hampshire and Nevada later this week. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Should lawmakers extend Trump-era tax cuts now that they have some time on their hands due to the latter continuing resolution to keep the government funded? They're said to help small businesses with immediate deductions, keeping more jobs here in the states, and families with child tax credits. But what about their impact on big businesses? We hear more on this from John Schweppe, Director of Policy at the American Principles Project. Well, look, President Trump, one of his biggest accomplishments was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It did a lot of good things for American businesses, uh, especially small businesses, and also uh, helped families by increasing the child tax credit from $1,000 to $2,000 per child and really, you know, put a lot of uh, cash in the hands of, of families when they need it the most. And now, you know, you're looking at inflation, you're looking at a, a you know, kind of struggling economy. Uh, and this is a great time for Republicans and, and Democrats alike to identify the best parts of that bill and try to extend them and make sure that they're permanent. It certainly is reasonable to expect that a thousand or two thousand dollars to deduct for a child is obviously a good thing here and especially in this era of high inflation. You talked about small businesses. Let's talk about the big ones and this research and development tax credit here. How important is it to extend that? It's pretty important. You know, I'm not necessarily the biggest uh, big business guy, but when it comes down to it, you know, we definitely want our research and development taking place here in the United States. We want to make sure that we're keeping as many jobs here as possible. We want to make sure we're, you know, ahead of our competitors like China and Russia. And so that's that's what this is really about. You know, we want to make sure, look, these companies do want to invest in themselves. They do want to make sure that they're improving their products, that they're improving their technology. Uh, but we want to make sure that the tax code works for that. And when you don't have this in place, it's a little bit of a disincentive towards that. We want to make sure that we are actually incentivizing it. And I think extending this provision from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act goes a long way towards doing that. So, John, you talk about the tax code. Under Trump, companies would be required to spread out their tax deductions over five years. And Senator from New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan, she's saying that that would actually hurt companies' bottom line. And these are companies like Lockheed Martin. So when we talk about competing with China, wouldn't you say that it's important for them to get the go-ahead at the beginning? Well, look, I think, you know, you have to look at that. There's obviously a debate over the amortization schedule and how best to do that. But certainly the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, put these R&D uh, deductions in place to help stimulate the economy, to help, you know, uh, allow these businesses to invest here at home and invest in their own technology. And so, you know, we certainly want to see an extension. You know, there'll be plenty of opportunity to debate should we do more at a later point. But, you know, we're here in December. I think the goal is to hopefully get an extension out uh, before the holidays or at least, you know, early in the new year. And uh, the best way to do that is just to continue what was done in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Well, it's a fascinating perspective you bring to the table. John Schweppe, Director of Policy at the American Principles Project. Hey, thanks so much. Switching gears, we're heading to today's inspired story. We hear from four brothers who lived a real-life jungle book upbringing. As children of American missionaries, they grew up among the tribal people deep in the jungles of Indonesia. The four wild brothers, Morgan, Hudson, Kian, and Asher, spent 15 years living alongside members of the Wano tribe in the jungles of Indonesia. Now back in the United States, they share their experiences with NTD. We grew up in the, the easternmost province of the country of Indonesia, an island called Papua. And um, there we grew up in a very remote context, context actually in the, in the Highland Mountains 
and um, among a beautiful um, people group called the Wano. And um, we lived with them fully enculturated in the village for many years. The Wild Brothers' parents are missionaries who sought their mission to bring Christianity to isolated communities in remote parts of the globe. The Wild Brothers say the Wano people are a semi-nomadic tribe with roughly 1,500 people in total. They speak their own language and are very community focused. Their lives are very hard. They don't have a lot of modern modern resources. There's no you know grocery stores. And so their lives are very difficult, but they're incredible gardeners and they slash and burn side of the mountain. They create these incredible, incredible gardens. Their parents introduced them to the Christian worldview and they in turn shared their teachings of the Bible to the Wano people. The Wild Brothers explain that the Wano people are animistic, which means they believe all of life around them was controlled by evil spirits and the only way to live was to appease the evil spirits. So their lives revolve around fear. The Wano people, they thought their wives, their women, become witches at night time. And so while we grew up there, we saw many of our friends, their moms were killed because the people of the village would think they're witches. Someone would die from a sickness and they would have to blame someone. If this person died, someone caused this death. There has to be a witch in our village. The brothers say some of the Wano people, when they are taught the Bible, chose not to believe in it, but others accepted it and that transformed the darker parts of their culture dominated by fear. The Wild Brothers say they're very privileged to have grown up surrounded by many different worldviews that it gave them a broader perspective and allowed them to understand what's important in life. What we saw with the Wano people is that the answer to these big problems in our life, these big problems in our cultures, is not better government or all these different answers that we run to, but the the answer to that is a personal relationship with God. Now back in the United States, the four brothers are venturing into filmmaking, documenting their unique experiences and adventures. Wow, really spreading the gospel there, turning their fear into hope. That's really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and totally, while uh, independent from what they're doing there, I think that's incredible to grow up, grow up in an environment like that, right? So it's just because oh, you learn so much for that's a completely different culture you learn more acceptance I think they touched on it right you learn acceptance and more understanding for other people and I think it just really opens your eyes and you know what other things there are in in this world apart from you know our country or you know what, what you're used to so I think that's incredible yeah a lot of things we may take for granted you just go to the grocery store and there you have your yeah. food all lined on the shelves whereas they have to clear out the brush and then use those tiered farms right and I bet there is a thousand ways to do it too <laughs> yeah well and I'm sure they have a lot of biodiversity in the products they oh, get to eat for sure all right, uh, to end the week we have some more interesting stories for you that's right the first story involves a bull on the tracks. A video shared on social media shows a bull running through a commuter rail station. The animal reportedly got loose in New Jersey and then headed into Newark Penn Station yesterday. It was captured shortly after and is now safely in custody. And a polar bear is celebrating his 17th birthday by having mad fun in Illinois Brookfield Zoo. To celebrate, workers there made him a birthday cake of only one that a polar bear could love, one made of ice and topped with herring, and another one with raisins. Mm. The cuddly creature named Hudson is having a whale of a time playing with his treats and toys. That looks, yeah, it looks like he is having a ton of fun. And he's a senior polar bear, apparently. Apparently they, uh, I guess that's in the wild though. Only a small percentage actually turned 15 to 18 years old. But did you know that apparently there is polar bear and grizzly bear uh, hybrids now that have been discovered? Okay, so do they call it a pizzly bear? Oh, ooh, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> or uh, a growler bear? I'm not quite sure. We might have to look into that. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's what they coined it. But you know, polar bears, they can actually swim for days at a time. Oh, yeah. yeah. And three times faster than the average human, too. They got to get from one ice to the other. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our news broadca today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.